Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's great to have Liliana Mason on the podcast. Mason is Associate Professor of Government and Politics at the University of Maryland College Park and author of Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity with the University of Chicago Press. She received her PhD in political psychology from Stony Brook University and her BA in politics from Princeton University. Her research on partisan identity, partisan bias, social sorting, and American social polarization has been published in journals such as American Political Science Review, American Journal of Political Science, Public Opinion Quarterly, and Political Behavior, and featured in media outlets including the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, and National Public Radio. Dr. Mason, what an honor it is to chat with you today. Thank you so much for having me. When you were writing this book, did you ever imagine just how relevant it would be to June 13th, 2020? Yeah, I so I actually started writing this book in 2009 uh, because it was my dissertation. And so uh, I kind of came up with the idea of this when we were sort of still in the like hope change early Obama uh, time. And I we still had plenty of, you know, clearly partisan animosity, but I... And I was trying to explain that, but I didn't, I certainly didn't know how, how bad it would get in the future. Yeah. You, you talk in the book, I thought it was really interesting. You talked about hope leaders and fear leaders. I hadn't seen that distinction in, in the literature. That's a real distinction that people have noted throughout the course of human leadership. I mean, not really. This is more thinking about the emotion, work on a sort of emotions and, and behavior and then thinking about sort of how how leaders can man- manipulate the emotions of the electorate in order to sort of get the outcome that they want. And, and you know, Obama is a great example of someone who's leading with hope and enthusiasm, um, whereas Trump is a better example of someone who leads with more sort of anger, anxiety, that those types of emotions. You know, it's interesting. Your book really talks about these different perspectives and just trying to understand where different people are coming from. And you made a statement like, well, things are so bad. You know, I imagine there's Trump supporters listening to this podcast that don't see it as bad. They see the other side as bad. And uh, I'm just wondering, how can we get out of this quagmire where we talk to each other? Yeah, I used to make a joke when I would go give talks about the book. You know, people would say, how do we get out of this? And I would um, I would joke, you know, if aliens were to attack Earth, then maybe we would all come together as, you know, human beings and uh, we would have this superordinate identity, at least as Americans, right, to like, defeat this outside, clearly outside force that had common a common goal. But 
uh, you know, I think the closest that you can come to that actually happening in reality is, is sort of COVID. That's what I was thinking. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. And what we've seen is that, uh, the, the way we have responded to it has been to politicize it. And that makes it very difficult to even react or make, make, you know, productive changes. And that actually is a great demonstration of how I think really dangerous polarization can be. If everything is politicized, then the point of every decision is for your party to win, not for people to, you know, everyone in the country to do well and survive. Yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, did we ever, can you ever think of, I can try to think of any point that I've been alive where the predominant focus I've saw in politics was on common, uplifting common humanity. I mean, that, that should be the goal, but I, I can't remember it ever existing. Can you? I think the closest that we've come to that was actually criticized. Uh, this was in 1950. The American Political Science Association editors wrote a letter for their annual meeting, um, which they always do. And But in 1950, the letter said, we need the parties to be more distinguishable. Mm. They're too close to each other. Voters don't have clear information because the two parties basically look the same. And so there's, you know, we need more polarization to give voters a better cue about who, which side they should vote for. They just have, there's no, there's no difference right now. Mm. And it wasn't that the, that both parties were sort of working for the common good, but actually they were so similar to each other at that point in time mm. that there wasn't a lot of information for voters about which party was best for them. And kind of either one would have been fine um, particularly for white voters at, at, at that period of time. That's interesting. Yeah. That wasn't in my lifetime or, no. <laughs> or, or yours. I, I, no. I yeah. Well, what a time, what a time. And you make some important distinctions I think might help people frame various issues today and, and see it in, in a lot clearer. One interesting distinction you make is between social polarization and policy polarization. Uh, was there there was a time when they were more aligned? Is that right? Than than we see today. Um, so, really, what it is is that as political sort of as political scientists, we have thought about polarization as a divide between policy preferences. And so, for instance, when people um, measure polarization within Congress. They look at how everyone voted on various bills and see, you know, how far are Republicans from Democrats on average in each of these bills that they vote for. So the assumption has always been that the that the way to measure polarization is to look at issue preferences and policy preferences. Um, the problem is that a lot of uh, a lot of Americans have very conflicting issue and policy preferences. Um, the average American is generally to the left of center in their policy preferences across a range of issues. And, but also, you know, more Americans call themselves conservatives than call themselves liberals. So there's a lot of confusion in terms of what Americans understand about ideology and policy and what the government does. And so the, you know, as I was starting this project, what I was thinking was, you know, we know things about intergroup conflicts that can predict outcomes where groups really hate each other. And that has nothing to do with what a government does. It has nothing to do with the, you know, with the policy preferences of the people in the groups. A lot of the time, it's just very basic, you know, human, human psychology reasons for having intergroup conflict. And, and it, that, that hadn't really been applied to, to political party at that point, um, with like one exception. Um, and, and so this, that to me, it was hard to make the argument, right? Because political scientists don't want to think that democracy is a bunch of people making kind of team oriented, just like lashing out type choices in their votes. They want to think that, that, that voters are, are thoughtful and rational and making, you know, the, the choice that is the best for the most people. That's what democracy, democracy is supposed to be. But it really turns out it's not it's not that way. And so you can separate, if you separate these two concepts, it becomes a lot easier to understand what's going on in American politics. Well, it's not a surprise to me as someone who studied narcissism and self-esteem and what happens when our ego is threatened in some way or identity and an identity's ego, so to speak, is threatened. It seems like everyone's threatening everyone's identity, ego right now 
Yeah. I mean, well, this goes back even just to, you know, the minimal group paradigm experiments of social identity theory from Tajpal in the 1970s. Love that stuff. Love yeah. That stuff. I mean, it's, it's all, first of all, it's extremely reproducible. Um, and it's also really, it demonstrates a very simple idea, which is basically that even in the like weakest group identity, right? Someone just told you that you're in a group and you don't know any other group members and you're never going to meet them. Even in that scenario, people still privilege, if they have to like allocate money to people, people still privilege their own group's victory over the greater good scenario. Even in that weak, weak identity. So we should expect it to continue to happen as identities grow stronger and stronger. But that is a real challenge for democracy. If everyone who feels a social attachment to a party prefers partisan victory, even at a loss to their own party, you know, overall, but if they're, you know, they, they get less, but they get more than the other side. If they prefer that to the sort of overall greater good of the nation, that's not going to work out for democracy. That's there's not for the nation. Yeah. 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 There's some real threats to democracy right now. There's no, there's no way of uh, sugarcoating that. Right. No. I maybe would have sugarcoated it like seven years ago, but I feel like there's just no way of sugarcoating that right now. Yeah. I think we were sugarcoating it yeah. seven years ago. I think I was even sugarcoating it in the conclusion, the concluding chapter of my book. <laughs> I was, you know, trying to find a way for there to be a happy ending where everything's okay. And it's just, it doesn't seem to be fixable. I think my only optimism right now is the, is sort of the, the reckoning with racial justice that we're having at this point. This, to me, is the only possible path forward for democracy to function. The only possible way is for us as a nation to sort of rip off the mandate of, of, you know, this legacy of white supremacy, because what's happened is the parties have become divided along the lines of does racism exist? Mm. And that is sort of the new sort of deepest cleavage between the parties is does systemic racism exist in America and has it been been existing, you know, forever. And, and effectively our parties have divided on this idea. So if we don't have sort of hash out this question, it's going to be hard for us to cooperate or, or really talk honestly through any other problem. I agree. And this is something I, I, I found really elucidating in your book is talking about how different political parties have become more socially homogenous. And in these different clusters that we now see together where you have like multiple identities clustered together, which give power to an identity, you know, to a particular identity. If you have, you know, three, four different, uh, like religion, race, gender, you know, you see these things all cluster together under, under party lines. You can have a very powerful force for good or bad on both sides. But can you tell me actually how, how we're seeing that social homogeny right now? So the data basically show for a long time, we've been seeing the Republican Party becoming sort of more white and more um, evangelical in particular. Uh, okay. Recently, in recent years, I would say not even like before Trump, increasingly becoming rural, uh, mm-hmm. whereas Democrats are, are more urban and then suburban people are in the middle somewhere. The And, and, and sort of place-based identity can be a real, uh, actual strong identity if it's, if it's being threatened. Um, the gender gap is increasing. So women tend to be Democrats more than men. Um, and, uh, and then Democrats are this, this really large coalition of non-white, non-evangelical, sort of everyone else, right? Where it's the people, people who live in really diverse areas, that's where the Democrats tend to be. And so the, as those, so really what we have is, you know, kind of, this both a rural urban divide. We have a education based, increasingly an education based divide. Um, and 2016 was the very first time that uh, class was not a dividing factor between the parties. Like they were equally, equally working class versus middle class. And that's partially because we used to have education and income are obviously correlated. Um, but we used to have both of those pointing in the same direction where more highly educated people and more wealthy people were Republican. And in 2016, that changed so that more highly educated people were Democrats and more highly income people were still Republicans. So the total effect of class is, is sort of canceled out in 2016. And we don't know if that's just going to stay there or if it's going to like cross so that we end up with these different, these sort of different coalitions now. 
look, that's really interesting. Like, I really, I kind of want to zoom in on that in a second because you're seeing almost like, and correct me if I'm just talking absolute nonsense, but it almost seems like we're seeing on the the Trump party lines uh, a lot of low income white people uh, feeling aggrieved. And on the Democrat lines, you have uh, a lot of African-Americans, low income, maybe same income line, but African-American identity, just African-American, you know, feeling aggrieved. So, yes, you're right. It doesn't seem like it's it's strictly about the uh, the class or the economics, but it, it does feel more and more racial. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not talking nonsense, right? No, not at all. Okay, yeah. I mean, this is the age-old problem of American, you know, especially black-white um, relations in American history and society is that, you know, poor white people have always been incentivized to, to, to um, discriminate against poor black people so that they don't all gather together and rise up against the wealthy, right? Like, it's... Well, why don't they get together and, and, and there's more power in working together than divided, right? Well, so the so this actually goes back to sort of the status thing that we're talking about, right? If you want your, people are willing to sacrifice as long as their group is better than the other group, right? And so um, the, the, the scenario, what W.B. Du Bois calls it the wages of whiteness, where, where essentially poor white workers were given social status instead of a wage, instead of, instead of actual money, so that they had, they, they felt themselves to be morally and biologically oh. superior. Like entitled, entitled yeah but even in like reality like they were actually like given Uh, better you know schools and they were given better access to you know grocery stores and neighborhoods and and so the the even if they're making the same amount of money they have this social status that particularly if they're not making a lot of money they're very desperate to, to defend right if you lose that status then you lose everything uh, and that's the only thing making you feel like you're, you know, not at the bottom of the ladder in society. And so that that divide, as long as as long as we have poor white people feeling that they have this status advantage over poor black people, then there will not ever be a, a cooperation between them to in, improve everyone's economic outcomes. Such a shame. It it feels like they should bond <laughs> more with each other. Like you look, you all have a lot in, in, in common. Like, couldn't we have a leader that kind of inspires them all to, you know, kind of see, see each other in each other. That's possible. It's certainly right. Leaders certainly can divide people. So it, it could be possible that we could have a leader that found a way to, to kind of cross that barrier. The problem is, but that, that I really think the problem is deeply psychological though. Because yes. we value—that's why you're on the psychology yeah, exactly. podcast. <laughs> we value our status more than we value money, wow. and because it—it's such a core part of our self-esteem, and that we are ready to defend at all costs. You can't—you can't live a life without feeling that you have some esteem, right, in some way in your life. And so, people are—you know—there's a lot. There's a there's a book called Dying of Whiteness. The measured health outcomes um, for white people in areas where, you know, largely that were led by, you know, sort of Republican, very, you know, very conservative, you know, small government type of leaders and lots of those types of voters. And that, and they were losing years off of their lives because of the decisions they were making, largely because they don't want black people to get those things, right? If you give people, if you give everyone health care, then black people get health care just as much as white people get health care. And then Where's that status? They don't have any more. Then they're not different from from the black people. To me, why that sounds a bit uh, illogical is that black people are people. <laughs> you know, the thing is, like, we're all people, and you know, you have people who who are white, and it's like, yeah, I want to help other poor white people. I want to help them, but I don't want to help black poor people. But you're all people, and you're all poor. So it just it kind of boggles my mind that way of thinking. We kind of made a deal to decide that black people were not people as soon as we enslaved them. Yeah, well, that's that's what it is, right? right? And so yeah. you you had to have a whole lot of motivated reasoning and work, psychological work that people had to do to convince themselves that black people were not people for hundreds of years, and it hasn't been hundreds of years since since that. And so you know, it was four hundred years of slavery. We we haven't even 
approach past that time, since the end of slavery, and certainly not since the end of Jim Crow. So, so we spent a lot of time, you know, really embedding the idea that black people were not people um, in the minds of, of white Americans. And it's, that takes time to change. And it's also just a, a very simple cue, right? Like it's, it's not hard to tell, it's not like a Catholic and a Protestant, you know, hating each other on site because the, the, maybe there are some visual cues in the way people, people look, but in general, the ways, you know, the sort of that type of religious divide is different than a black white divide, which is very visible. And in fact, the um, political scientist um, Michael Tesler has written a lot about this, how the Obama presidency is, is was sort of the impetus for a lot, the sort of remaining poor white Democrats to leave the Democratic Party just because they weren't paying attention to politics. They weren't, you know, watching politics on TV. They weren't reading about politics. But the simple cue of, you know, what the president looked like told them that they didn't belong in that party. And so it was nothing Obama said or did. It was just the simple fact of his face being on the, the front of the newspaper that they walked by on their way to work. So that's, that's literally it, like the color of the skin. Yeah, it's very easy to see. And so for people who otherwise are not paying attention to anything, it's a very, it's the simplest, maybe except for gender, it's the simplest cue. Maybe even more than gender, actually. You know, when I was reading your book, you talked about George Washington's frightful depotism, and I was just so taken back by, if he was alive today, he would say he would be frightful, don't you think? I think he'd be furious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you can you explain to our listeners like just remind them what the what frightful uh, yeah so in, is. in Washington's farewell address he specifically warned Americans not to form political parties that they grew very attached to because if they did that then first of all they wouldn't care about America as a whole anymore it provides an opportunity for foreign interests he specifically said for foreign interests to divide us against each other. It provides an opportunity for people who want to meddle with the success of, of American democracy to have a very natural you know, place to try to st start dividing Americans and, and damaging American democracy. And he's specifically warned against this and saying that, you know, if we have these partisan identities, that you know, it will take on a life of its own. It will become frightful. And and then the following election, they created two parties. <laughs> and, then we, and then the rest is history. <laughs> the Constitution didn't plan for parties. They assumed that the, that the largest fights that we would be having would be between big states and small states. That's the way the Constitution was built, to, to make sure that we could balance between big states and small states. And it just didn't think about parties at all. And so a lot of our problems assumed that rational people would make the best choice. The reason we have the Electoral College, for instance, is that the founders didn't trust the electorate to make the best choices. Some, you know, there may be a demagogue who comes along sometime and and you know convinces people to support him, even if it doesn't make he's not the necessarily the best candidate for America. And in that case, the Electoral College was supposed to change the will of America. That was the reason that they're there. They're supposed to overturn the popular vote. The entire purpose of it. And so, but, but what they didn't see coming was that partisanship would make it so that no one is going to change their vote in the Electoral College, even if they think the candidate is a bad candidate, because they need that victory. Were people in, in Washington's day in politics, were they, were they more thoughtful and reasonable and cordial? What was different? Well, the first thing to note is that in that period of time, it was only white landowning men who were allowed to vote. Okay, so in that sense, yes, the, you're right, yeah. So the people that they were most worried about making bad choices were white landowning men who maybe were uneducated or unsophisticated in some way, and that's who's that's who's vote the electoral college would overturn. So that in the to begin with, that was a very small electorate, and then you know I think during Washington's time, there was there were a lot of Enlightenment ideas, right? They were trying to create a new type of of government, and so. There was a, there were, you know, sort of lofty ideals being thrown around, but by people who owned slaves and, and understood that, you know, all 
are not created equal as long as you think of you know black human beings as not human beings yeah so so there was a you know there's there's a deep paradox at the core of american democracy that we've never really dealt with um but I, but, you know, I think that they had these, they had good, they had lofty ideas. They just, um, they didn't really live them out. And I, and I'm not sure anyone really has fully lived them out since then. You talk now about how there's a lot of emotion driven action. Why are we so emotional and why do emotions matter? Appraisal theory first. So that basically says if you're feeling threatened and you know the source of your threat, you know where the threat is coming from, then you feel angry. And anger is an approach emotion, so we should expect you to then go into action. If you feel threatened and you don't know where the threat is coming from, you don't understand the source of your threat, that will lead to anxiety. And anxiety is a, is a withdrawal emotion. Is a, so you, instead of approaching, you move away and think about what to do. And so the, the idea is that anger should drive people into action and anxiety should actually pull them back from action. So one really easy way for a leader, for instance, to make people angry rather than anxious is to say, hey, I know you're all feeling really threatened and sort of uncertain in these, in these crazy times. I'm going to tell you who to blame, whether it's true or not. And as soon as I tell you who to blame, then you can become angry and then you can go participate in politics and become and take action. And to some degree, that's what Trump did with the kind of Trump base. He took a bunch of people who were feeling just sort of ill at ease with the way society was going, with the way they felt they were being treated by the, you know, kind of like liberal elites with, you know, the, the, the liberalization of our sort of moral society and, and also bad economic times and, and, you know, economic challenges and the hollowing out of rural America, sort of all of these things mixed together created a sense of something's not right. I think a lot of people didn't know what to, where to place that, that feeling of, of discomfort and threat. And so to have a leader come along and say, it's the immigrants, you should be building a wall to, to stop them from coming in, and then you'll feel better. And so now you know who to attack. You know who's the bad guy. It's the immigrants. And so then everyone feels, instead of anxious and uncertain, they feel very certain and ready to go. And it's And he mobilized people who weren't previously voting by kind of converting these, these sort of uncertain people into very certain, very angry and very motivated people. I think probably the, you know, the, the, the major it question is what's going to happen this next election now that people have seen the truth and that, and I think America will really be tested in a, in a big way with this next election. It's yeah. So this is the, this is the, the, this is a very, first of all, very uncertain question, answer to the question. And also, it is a very risky time. I think that we have, it, it's a time that there's an opportunity for a lot of really big changes, but we don't know which way those changes are going to go. So the, actually, the project that I'm working on now with Nathan Calmo at LSU is a, is a second book on sort of what partisan, how far can partisanship go to not just make people dislike each other, but, but you know, even dehumanize and, and all the way up to, you know, approve of violence against people on the other side and people in the other party. Uh, so we're looking, we're also looking at what happens when an election is delegitimized, when the outcome of an election is not considered legitimate by large portions of people. And so far, what we found is that there's sort of, you know, this sort of, this like five to 15% of Americans, and we've done like seven, eight surveys at this point, measuring these same things. Generally, five to fifteen percent of partisans who are willing to advocate for political violence um, against the other party, including against regular people in the electorate, not just party leaders, and that number kind of stays in that general realm. Now, if you think about, you know, what is let's say ten percent of partisans in America, we have millions and millions and millions of those people. But the main thing that we found is that they they can be brought down from that attitude. So elite rhetoric really, really matters. So whatever leaders are saying, they can make people approve of violence less by saying something pacifying, and they can make people feel more approving of violence by saying something approving of violence. So something to pay a lot of attention to right now is what are our political leaders saying in terms of encouraging 
violence, encouraging the types of action that, um, that might, that might be, you know, extremely, um, damaging down the road in terms after the election. I thought it was really interesting how you talked about activism. You have a quote, you say activism may have increased over the last few decades, but this is not necessarily a responsible outcome-based participation. Do you have any criticisms of current activism efforts? No, I mean, I think it's more of an overall, in in political science as a field, we tend to think about act, political action as a completely 100% normative good because we assume that people are acting rationally. And so the more people that are participating in politics, the better the electorate represents the whole country. And so we have a better and stronger democracy. So we have more people voting. That's more buy-in. That's more representation. That's just good, purely good for the American um, public. But like I said before, with the anger issue, sometimes people participate in politics, not because they've really thought through policy preferences and what they want the government to do, but instead because somebody just told them who who to blame for all their problems. And so they just get up and run. And in that scenario, that's not normatively good participation, right? That's not necessarily representing a, a well-reasoned, um, you know, policy agenda for the future of the federal government. It's it, instead, it's really sort of just wild participation. And there's a, it's very hard, you know, you can't just like draw a simple line to distinguish between those two things. But, uh, but I was, I, I really wanted to make the point that there, it's possible to have activism that isn't normatively good. Yeah. It's a sort of, you know, that's a disputed claim, but that's my... Well, I wonder if this relates at all uh, to another point you made, which I thought was wonderful because it's just not pointed out that often, and that's that just because you have an in-group doesn't mean you have to hate your out-group. You know, there can be he- there can be healthy activism in the sense that you have great pride for your in-group, you want to fight for rights for your in-group, but, but that's what you're fighting for, not specifically to eradicate an out-group. So that that somehow seems related to uh, maybe different types of activism efforts. Yeah, I think, and that was a really important sort of part of the theory that was advanced by Marilyn Brewer in the late '90s, early 2000s, which is that in-group love is one part of an, of an identity, and out-group hate is another part, and they don't always go together. The the net, sort of the first instinct of social identity is to affiliate and to feel close to the people in your group and to hope that they are better than the other people, right? But not necessarily to hate the other people. Um, And the hatred comes when there is either a conflict over resources between the groups or if there has already become a complete lack of trust between the groups. Because then in that scenario, and this I think really is reflected in the COVID response, you know, everyone says like, let's have this superordinate threat. And then everyone, you know, like a a threat to all of America and then Democrats and Republicans will work together. Well, but if Democrats and Republicans don't trust one another, they don't, they don't trust each other to address the threat in the right way. And they are fearful that the other side will, will address the threat in the wrong way and actually harm them. And so in that scenario, with a lack of trust, a superordinate threat can actually make the two, make the intergroup conflict worse Oh, well, that's what we've seen. I mean, it's yeah, I know. But like, this is what we've seen in, in terms of responses to the, you know, to the sort of the virus recommendations. Dr. Mason, why are humans so horrible yeah. to each other? <laughs> I, so I don't think we're horrible. I know. I'm, I'm kind of being cheeky because I, I, I'm a humanistic psychologist. I'm ultimately optimistic about humanity. We're kind of a young species still. And and, you know, it actually makes a lot of sense for us to, to form bonds with other people uh, and, to, and to create boundaries around where that group ends and another group be- begins, right? The only way for us to have society is to understand, you know, who you are as a part of that society and who is, who is like you in that society, and if you think back to sort of, you know, like evolutionary psychology, you know, in the like village days, there are, you know, real boundaries between between groups of people, geographical boundaries between groups of people. And it was it's important to know that you have loyalty to your group and you're willing to and you're willing to defend your group. And that's that 
it, you know, families are like that. And, and any, any, you know, group of people that share something that they want either want to maintain or that they feel is being threatened, um, they will behave that way. And that can be an honorable thing, or you can use it to destroy people. And you can use it to intentionally, as George Washington warned, you can use it to intentionally turn people against each other to harm an entire nation. And I think, you know, we see that in election meddling, foreign election meddling. Um, it doesn't take a whole lot to make Americans hate each other by, you know, by putting some bots out there. Um, we already hate each other. So you just have to really poke at that. And, and, and so it, it's, it can, it's a tool for good and for evil. And some people are, you know, on a, on an international level, would prefer that we don't exist and we feel it. And that makes us behave really badly towards each other as Americans. Mm. But, you know, there's a point I just want to return to, which is the crux of your entire book. And, and, and I think it's encapsulated by this quote, American partisans can grow increasingly socially distant from one another, even if their policy disagreement are not profound. This this gets at the you know let's zoom in on on basically this is the crux of your work so isn't isn't there something a glimmer of hope in, in that will if we actually started shifting our focus to the things that we agree on we may realize wow there's actually more here than uh, than than meets the eye if we immediately start to hate someone I'm not as optimistic about that one because. Uh, okay. I, I actually, rep, you know, so I'm going beyond the book. I replicated this with the 2016 election data. And still, the average American is slightly to the left. If you average, you know, the issue positions across like six really contentious issues. If you look at, you know, how well Americans put their issues on, like, you know, so if Democrats are on the liberal side of an issue or Republicans are on the conservative side of an issue, how correct are people, you know, at, at holding the right issue positions? Generally, neither Democrats or Republicans are very good at, at sort of holding the correct issue positions for their party, or even just being on the right side of the, of the middle. And, and so the, the 2016 electorate was one that actually there was plenty of room for people to collaborate on. It was, there's so much overlap in what Americans actually think. And, you know, America's not Twitter, right? Like the average American who is asked questions about what they want government to do is or what they think society should do. There's there's a huge amount of of room for compromise in, in policy alone. But then you ask those same people how they felt. So asking Republicans how they felt about Democrats and and vice versa, they hate each other. Even in the same survey, the same people in the same survey, they really hate the other par political part, the people in the other political party. Well, the other political party, and they also really love their own. Wow. So. Even in a single, you know, set of respondents that has tons of issue-based overlap, they still really don't like the people on the other side. And that's, you know, it, the policy agreement won't work until the until the the social divide is is addressed. I think it's just too rational. Well, Doctor Mees, I'm going to keep trying to get at hope here. Um, you, you do mention in the psychological literature some things we know that might help with intergroup reconciliation. Let's, for the remainder of this podcast, just briefly touch on some of these things. So maybe we have some people listening in a position of policy or, or can make a change and they can adopt some of these principles. So one is contact theory. You say, while exposure to opposing political ideas and individuals can moderate intolerance and polarization, this exposure is growing far less frequent. How can we increase exposure across party lines? One of the original studies on this was during the Korean War, the, the United States Armed Forces were desegregated, but they, it was done so battalion by battalion in almost random order. It was just wherever they needed more troops, they would desegregate that battalion. So it was sort of like a natural experiment. And sociologists interviewed all of these soldiers in both the desegregated and the still segregated battalions. And what they found was that the white soldiers in the desegregated battalions were much more racially tolerant than the white soldiers in the still segregated battalions. So that was a that was a great example of, you know, it's just contact. But it's it's not only contact, it's contact in a scenario in which they are in 
the two groups are not competing over resources. They're, they're not even competing over hierarchy because those, you know, the military hierarchy assignments are relatively strict. And so they just are what they are. Um, and also they're all working towards a common goal. The superordinate goals, as you talk about. Right. Yeah. Which really only work if you have those other two things, though. Yeah. So the, you know, one of the sort of like moonshot ideas that I think about is like a national service program where we intentionally move people to other parts of the country they wouldn't otherwise go and expose them to people, you know, like high school, do mandatory gap year after high school and, and move kids into a place where they wouldn't otherwise be exposed to these people. Um, and, you know, and then that would give, it would give some sort of either tuition benefit or, um, you know, it would become an honor. So you put on your CV or your resume and it'd be easier to get hired. And then freshman year in college, ideally you could have some kind of like required debrief course where every freshman goes into the debrief and talks about what happened over the last year and how this, these sort of social relationships work so that they can understand exactly what happened to them and be more aware, kind of more mindful about the way they think about other people um, and the way they judge other people in general. That I think would be the most ideal way to educate sort of the next generation of Americans. You know, you're seeing some hopeful snapshots of protests on the news where you see like the police and the protesters doing the boogie dance together. <laughs> you know, you see these <laughs> these flickers of moments. I don't know what positive that is going to be, but they they warm my heart when I see such things, you know, or you see um you know, just people who they're supposed to hate, you know, they're told they're supposed to hate each other and that they just put it down for a second and decide we're just not going to hate each other for a second. You know, like I just, I see these glimmers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, honestly, the thing, one of the things that gives me the most hope is that is the, is the diversity of the protesters. I've noticed that too. Yeah. It, it's, you know, people compare this to 1968 all the time. It's very different from 1968 because yeah. These protests are very, very diverse. And this that's what Spike Lee said when he was yeah. interviewed recently. Yeah. He's like, it's amazing the difference. It's huge. And and honestly, what it's bringing up is not just police reform, but a, a call for Americans, white Americans in particular, to understand that black Americans have been living under a different type of state than white Americans have been living under. And what we've seen recently in recent, even just recent decades, uh, sorry, recent years before the protests, so starting in, you know, 2015, is that white Democrats have been, have been becoming a lot more aware of systemic racism, systemic racism over, over the sort of Trump presidency, where, I mean, and it's massive. It's something like, you know, um, people who agree that uh, the government needs to do more to help blacks in American society, that goes from... 40 something percent of white Democrats to 80 something percent of white Democrats by 2019. So there's, there's really big changes happening among white Democrats in particular about awareness of what's happening to black Americans in our, in our society. And, you know, the fact that we're seeing Confederate statues come down now, right. That's not about police. That's about saying the civil war never really ended or, or at least the, the Confederacy was never fully defeated because all of these laws were put in place to truly hold back black Americans. And, and I really, I really do think that part of the reason we can say this now is that there isn't, this has never happened before. There's an entire political party that believes that systemic racism exists. The democratic party, like white, the white people and, and everybody else in the democratic party basically believe that systemic racism exists. And we have never had an entire political party that believes that before. We've always had sort of white supremacists scattered through both the Republican and Democratic parties. And there wasn't a big difference. And that's part of the reason they could get along and like make compromises, right? In the 1980s, Democrats and Republicans could make compromises because they all agreed that like, okay, we'll do this, but only for white people. And and so this this sort of suppression of the knowledge of systemic racism allowed a lot of cooperation in Congress, uh, but that doesn't help. That doesn't help us as a you know in the society as a whole. And so I really think that a large part of this is that because the parties have changed um, socially, the sort of the social demographic makeup of the parties has changed so much in recent decades. That is allowing a lot more political power than has ever been applied to the, the idea that systemic racism exists, it's bad, and it should be ended. It would be really nice if everyone could 
get a you know rally around facts and not just ideologies and and we that we agreed you know this we agree this is a factually a problem we 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 don't agree that there's a problem that we could somehow come towards some sort of agreement on some of these things but because there's there's widely different opinions on the extent of the systemic racism and i don't think you know the the, the, the there's a definitive answer i just read a really fascinating article by uh, someone i really respect john mcwarder uh, who is a african american i believe conservative Talking about uh, saying there, there there really isn't good data that the police force is racist. There's a real there's a problem, but we could all rally around the the problem of police corruption, regardless of your race. You know, there's a lot of uh, uh, white people killed by police, and there's not so so some some reasonable people. And I would not say John McWhorter is racist. You know, just for for presenting a different viewpoint. You know, yeah. So how how do we listen to different viewpoints and try to try to agree on facts. So I think it's really important for us to keep in mind the difference between a person being racist and a society disadvantaging, systematically disadvantaging a group of people, right? It's not that one person is racist. It's that, you know, we had redlining so that black families were not allowed into neighborhoods. And we had neighborhood organizations that didn't allow black families to buy houses in those neighborhoods. And those neighborhoods were the ones with the good schools. And, and this was happening not even, you know, 50 years ago. So this is happening to my, in my dad's gener- in generation. Um, and, and so this is, you know, I think that the idea is not that we're, we're pointing fingers at people and saying, you're a racist. It's that race, racism has existed in American society since the very beginning. And we've been on this sort of constant journey to try to eliminate it in the system, not even just in individual people's minds, but just to change the, you know, redlining became illegal in the sixties. So there are, you know, racial discrimination is technically illegal starting in 1964, but that was 1964. That was not very long ago. And then there are plenty of people in charge who are still upholding that old system of systemic racism. So it's, you know, I think it's a really important, it's a really important thing for people to separate the idea of like being called racist and understanding our society and the, and the institutions upon which we live. Right. Um, and I, and I do, I do think there is one, one bit of hope is that we've also seen white Republicans becoming slightly more aware of, of systemic racism and also holding fewer negative stereotypes of black Americans. So it's, so Republicans are also becoming more aware of this. It's just that the gap between white Democrats and white Republicans is still very large. But the, but the changes are happening in both parties. So there is a general move toward understanding sort of the, the discrimination that, that Black Americans face on a day-to-day basis and, um, and the idea that, you know, we shouldn't hold these, these negative stereotypes, um, that, you know, there are not, there are not stereotype-based differences between white and Black Americans. So interesting. Uh, you, you see my point how... It, it, people really are not agreeing right now on even the extent of the, the various aspects of American Cyrus are systemically racist. Even people might say that the racism does exist and acknowledge that, but there seems to be quite quite wild disagreement. Uh, you know, uh, even within the, the Democratic Party, you know, I see lots of arguments on Twitter. Even uh, within the Democrat, you know, some people uh, will say, "How dare you even question?" That it's pervasive, you know, and they and then they immediately start hating each other without even discussing it. It's a very threatening thing to admit, right? Yeah. If if you're a white person who's been living in a society that has been benefiting you and harming other people uh, at your, you know, you've been benefited by at the expense of this other group of people. That's a hard. That's a hard thing to take on as just an. Well, John McWhorter is black. The the guy who uh, wrote yeah, that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, but it is a whole philosophy, and I the the difference. I think historians generally agree, right? Like the historians of American history agree that, that of American political history agree that, that we have had a systemically racist system since the founding. Um, the question is, right, obviously it was systemically racist when people were enslaved. Uh, and then once they were no longer enslaved, we had, um, eight years of reconstruction in which there were a lot of black community, really successful and thriving black communities that were built. And then they were literally murdered, um, by 
by white supremacists and we bombed them. Um, you know, like the white, white society destroyed those communities as soon as they were successful. And then, and then that led to an era of Jim Crow in which white people and black people weren't allowed to use the same water fountains. And that was only made illegal in 1964. And black people were really only allowed to vote in 1965. So, you know, think about the age of your parents in that year. We're not very far away from that. And it, and it takes, you know, if we have 400 years of slavery, it's going to take a lot more time than 50 years to undo that much psychological training, right? It's not a question of, you know, do I think this is true? Do I, do I, you know, like, what is my experience of it? The question is actually just historically what has happened, what have been the, what have been the, the priorities of our government, what have been the priorities of our institutions and like how people have been treated. And that historians are pretty clear on that. What I always try to do, I really appreciate your perspective. What I always try to do in the psychology podcast is always constantly trying to think of alternative like, what would someone else say to what you're saying? So yeah. um, I'm, that's why I'm trying to push you a little bit. Because, I, I mean, some people, you, you know, make arguments that in 2020, you know, we've really come a long way, even in 30, 40 years. And then we focus so much on uh, how we haven't come, that we, we very rarely talk about how far we have actually come. And some people might make that point. No, that's true. And we have come a remarkably far away, right? I mean, just just that, like we said, the, the demographics of the demonstrators that we've been seeing in all of these cities, right? We've clearly come a long way, but, but we also are still taking down Confederate monuments. So, you know, the, yeah. Yeah. We, and, and, you know, tech, those weren't there right after the civil war because the Confederacy was rebellion against the country. Um, they were the enemy. And so, you know, they were against the union. So they were actually the bad guys. And those, those, those statues went up during Jim Crow to put black people in those communities back in their place and to remind them that the people who made the decisions about where statues went and what the statues were believed in the Confederacy. So the, the Confederate, the fact that we still have those statues to me suggests that there's still something very deep that is, that is, we've all just sort of, you know, we look past it we walk past the statues and white people don't have to worry about it. We just walk past it and don't worry. Um, but it means something really, really different. And that's sort of, you know, kind of this crazy thing. NASCAR has prohibited the Confederate flag at NASCAR events. And like, wow. the US, I think it's U.S. Marines just made it um, no longer allowed for, for Marines to have a Confederate flag, like sticker on their, you know, whatever equipment. And the, the flag of the Confederacy was a flag of, of treason. You know, the, the idea that we have a, a military group that that had for a while allowed its soldiers to to have this flag of that was based on you know treason against America um, is really remarkable. So we've come a really long way. You're right. Then these 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 protests and demonstrations, I think, are really great evidence of that. But at the same time, you know, if we still have if we're still flying the Confederate flag at sporting events, that's I that's think a that's, signal. That's a really <laughs> clear signal to a lot of people. Yeah. All right. Well, I think this is the last hopeful thing we can do. Change it. Uh, we talked about contact theory. We talked about superordinate goals. Uh, social norms. You say one way that outright partisan prejudice may be addressed is for the parties themselves to establish new norms for partisan behavior. Could you see a new leader uh, coming to power or even our current leader somehow completely changing his whole style overnight? <laughs> Definitely not the current leader. He's not well known for controlling the language that he uses. Um, hmm. But Certainly, I think leadership does matter. The, you know, even, you know, going back to like our parents' generation, right? Like the, the use of derogatory racial slurs in our parents' generation was much more widespread than it is today. And now we just find it completely socially acceptable to say horrible things about political partisans on the other side. It's completely socially acceptable for us to, you know, call liberals or Democrats, you know, awful words and the same thing for Republicans and conservatives. So, you know, that to me seems like a, a norm that could be challenged. Um, it's, it's certainly anti-democratic. And the idea that we're just allowing people, not allowing, you know, you can't control what people say, but, but the way that we changed the use of like derogatory racial slurs is that we made it a norm that it's not okay to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's possible that this, the way that we talk about each other as Democrats and Republicans can could shift if we wanted it to, right? If we wanted to create new norms around the way that we talk about each other politically, um, that could potentially 
shift behavior. Um, you know, have, have that type of language not be seen on, you know, news or public media or any type of like popular, um, popular media. Because right now it's, it's just, it's so much more acceptable just to use these really awful words against Democrats and Republicans than it is about any other group at all. Agreed. And people are, it gets you more likes on Twitter among your fan base or your in-group if you use such words. Well, and, and Newt Gingrich, I mean, so in 1994, Newt Gingrich wrote what's called the GOPAC memo, which, which let which was a list of words that you should use to, this was for Republican, for freshman Republicans in the new 1995 Congress, where they first took over Congress, the Republicans took over Congress for the first time in 40 years. Uh, and he gave them a list of words that, that they should be using to talk about Republicans. And those were like patriotic, loyal, family, um, and then words that should be used to talk about Democrats. And those were things like poison, cancer, um, evil, serpent, you know, just like really terrible terrible language and that that really Are serpents bad uh, yeah i think like in the bible okay okay i think serpents are cool <laughs> anyway, okay but uh, yeah point taken so that i think that sort of did usher in a new era of like oh we're supposed to talk about people this way right newt gingrich told us that we could do that so That's we're allowed to do this we're allowed to say these these terrible things as I was looking at your book, I was like, is there any good news at all? And I found one thing, and maybe let's just leave on, on this. Uh, you talked about the importance of self-affirmation. It, people want to – there's so much ego threat going on right now, and, and everyone wants to matter. I mean, everyone. You, you, you see it. You see a desperate cry, uh, you know. Uh, I, I saw, you know, this this protest in England. Three people with white white people matter uh, signs. <laughs> like, like everyone wants to matter. Um, you wrote the good news is that Cohen et al. 2007 have found that simply reminding a person of their own self worth, a technique called self affirmation, can significantly reduce extremism and ideological closed mindedness. Do you think perhaps there's some way that we could all listen more to each other and affirm each other's basic worth and dignity as a, as a human being. So that requires us to do that for ourselves first, right? So the, the nice thing about, I mean, the easy thing about self-affirmation is that you can, you do it on your own, right? It's just like sit down and write about a time when you felt proud of yourself for five minutes. Just do that. And you'll be a nicer person after you do that. The problem is that it's really hard for us to internalize these really positive ideas about ourselves. And we're not going to be able to treat other people with kindness until we're, you know, it's self-affirmation until we're treating ourselves with kindness and, and believing in our own self-worth. And that's a lot that, that can be a challenge that, that, and it could be something that leadership could address, right? There could be, you know, a source of, you know, creating a source of pride, creating a source of yeah, healthy pride. Yeah. Outside of the bounds of, of partisanship. And that's, so that is a possible, that is a possible path forward. If there's, Something we do as Americans that that makes us feel good about ourselves, then then we may be able to get out of this mess. We need a really inspirational leader. I feel like I want to run for president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> I know I, what my message would be of of un- uniting <laughs> us all as a single species. <laughs> anyway, uh, look, you say, "quote I maintain that an electorate that is emotionally engaged and politically activated on behalf of prejudice and misunderstanding is not an electorate that produces positive outcomes." Look, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and offering your wonderful research. It's so timely right now, more so than you probably ever would have imagined or even hoped for. <laughs> you know, you probably wish your work wasn't so timely. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. it's like uh, being, uh, being an epidemiologist, I'm sure. Yes. Right? <laughs> that's right. That's, that's exactly right. Thanks for sharing your wisdom with us today on the Psychology Podcast and all the best with your new book as well. It was, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to the Psychology Podcast YouTube channel as we're really trying to increase our viewership on YouTube. In fact, many of these episodes are in video format on YouTube, so you'll definitely want to check out that channel. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity.
Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.